I only ever remember running out of gas on the road one time in my entire life, and it was when Abby and I were living in Eugene, Oregon. So we were driving from Eugene to Salem, which is a little over an hour north, and we were going along, and the the engine started to stall. Looked down, of course, saw it was on empty, pulled over to the shoulder. Now, we were driving a minivan back then, and luckily, I happened to have my bicycle in the back of the van. So I took it out. Abby sat on the seat, and I stood up and pedaled, and we rode down the shoulder of the highway to the gas station, got a little can of gas, rode back, and we were able to be on our way in not too much time, actually. So we were pretty lucky. But it reminded me that it's really important to check the gas. Fuel is really important. It's even more important when you're flying than when you're driving. Our house that we live in now is not more than a couple miles from a little regional airport. And the year that we moved in, there was a life flight helicopter flying towards Kansas City. And evidently there was an error and they failed to refuel at their last stop. When they realized that they were almost out of fuel, they tried to dash for this local regional airport and they didn't make it. They, The helicopter crashed not more than a, a block away from our house, just a little bit around the corner. It was you know, very sad. So a wise traveler plans ahead and, and prepares fuel for the journey. In uh, 1986, Burt Rattan built a two-seat airplane that held 7,000 pounds of fuel. He flew it nonstop without refueling all the way around the world, 26,000 miles in nine days. That required a lot of preparation and careful calculation about how much fuel they needed for that journey. Now, we've been looking at 1 Peter, the letter he wrote to a group of churches to prepare them for the coming persecution and to teach them how to live as exiles in this world, as travelers just passing through a land of foreigners. Today, we're going to look at verses 3 through 12, and among the many things it teaches, it shows Christians the kind of fuel they need to live as sojourners, fuel that carries us through and makes us able to not only endure but to thrive. So first let's read the text together and then we'll talk about it. It begins in verse three, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them 
was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. So Peter had just finished identifying himself and identifying his audience in verses 1 and 2, and that was customary in letters of that time. Paul's letters usually follow this opening section with a statement of thanksgiving to God. Peter instead fills his opening text with words of praise, that praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what does he praise God for? The rest of verses 3 and 4 tell us, because in his mercy he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. So he's praising God because of God's work of salvation. He mentions God's mercy. He mentions our new birth that he's given. He mentions the living hope that we have. And he says that this new birth is a birth into an inheritance. In other words, we've been born a second time, but of a different family, this time the family of God. And in that family, we've become heirs of a great inheritance, eternal life in the presence of God. When someone's born into a family and isn't an heir, like second-born sons of old European nobility, the only way to become an heir is for that first-born son to die, elevating your position. And that's exactly what Peter said happened. Our new birth and our inheritance are only because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God's only begotten from the dead. So Jesus's resurrection gives us our hope of our resurrection. We know that it's certain. So Peter describes this inheritance as one that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Earthly inheritances can be lost. We know this, the example of the prodigal son. The younger son squandered his inheritance while his father was still living. But we know it from things that happen in our contemporary society as well. The former mayor of San Diego, Maureen O'Connor, she married Robert Peterson, who was the founder of the Jack in the Box chain of fast food restaurants. When Peterson died in 1994, Maureen O'Connor inherited $50 million. In her grief, she got hooked on video poker. And in eight years, shockingly, she had won over a billion dollars. Now, unfortunately for her, in that same amount of time, she lost about a $1 billion, $13 million. So she ended up losing more than she won. And she ended up in embezzling money from her charity to pay the debts and wound up penniless and a criminal. But even with the best behavior, earthly inheritances can be lost. Anyone who's read the book of Job knows this. But Peter says that this inheritance of ours can never perish, spoil, or even fade it's eternal. It won't just last for life, but for all eternity. And where is this inheritance? Not in a vault that can be robbed, not in a stock market that can be plunged, not in Bitcoin that can do whatever it is that Bitcoin does, not even in a bank account that can be devalued by government-induced runaway inflation. Peter writes, this inheritance is kept in heaven for you. You who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. 
So it's kept in heaven, the safest, most unassailable place in the universe. It, the inheritance is safe, but what about you? Sometimes it's the case that an heir dies before they ever have the chance to inherit. In 1751, the heir to the English throne suddenly died at the age of 44. If he'd lived to a normal age, he almost certainly would have been king during the American Revolution. Instead, his son, George III, was king, and during the Revolution, he was quietly going mad while the Americans were breaking free. Prince Frederick never lived to take the throne and never saw his inheritance, much to the benefit of the United States. But what about you, Christian? How sure are you that you will one day see this inheritance that God has promised and promised to keep safe? Well, Peter says in these verses that you also are shielded by God's power through faith until the coming of that salvation, until the day we see it face to face. So the salvation is sure and eternal and our coming to it is certain and guaranteed. So these are good reasons to give thanks to God. And what's our response to this knowledge? Peter says in verse 6, In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. So we rejoice greatly because of this certain salvation, despite the trials of this life. Verse 7, he says, These, these trials, have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes, even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Christ Jesus, when Jesus Christ is revealed. So P Peter pivots for a moment to talk about these trials. He says that they've come to test, to refine, and to purify our faith for the day that Christ comes. In verse 8 he says, and 9, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So he says that we don't see Jesus yet. And though we haven't laid eyes on the promised inheritance, we believe and we're filled with joy, an inexpressible and glorious joy. So Peter here gives the means by which Christians can have joy, focusing our faith and belief in Christ even in the midst of the current trials. Like David said in the psalm, a table set before you in the presence of your enemies. The goal of our faith is our salvation, and the knowledge of that salvation brings us joy. In the last three verses of the section that we're going to look at today, Peter tells us something more about the awesomeness of this salvation that we're to receive. He says, the eyes of the whole universe across all space and time have been bent toward the goal of seeing and understanding the unfolding of this element of God's character, his mercy and grace in the rebellious world of human beings. So in verses 10 and 11, he says that the prophets of old eagerly looked into the salvation and they tried to understand it. So verse 10 says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. See, God revealed much about the future salvation to the prophets. To Abraham, it was revealed that the salvation would be a blessing to every nation on earth. 
To Moses, it was revealed that the Christ would be one of the Israelites. To King David, who was also a prophet, it was revealed that the Christ would be one of his own descendants, that his hands and feet would be pierced, and that he'd be betrayed by someone close to him. To Micah, it was revealed that he'd be born in Bethlehem. To Isaiah, it was revealed that the Messiah would be God himself and also a man, and that he'd die for the sins of the world and rise again. Each one saw a little, and together they saw much, but not nearly all. They didn't know when the Messiah would come. They didn't know that it would be the Romans who would crucify him. They didn't know how God would bring the offer of salvation from the Jewish people to the Gentiles, the rest of the nations of the world. And they were eager to know these things. But as it says in verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. So the prophets were given these messages by God not to help them recognize the Messiah, because they would be long dead, but to help the people of the time of Jesus recognize him, and for us today to see in him the fulfillment of all things and trust wholeheartedly in him. But it wasn't just the prophets of old who were eager to know about this incredible, joy-bringing salvation. Peter goes on to say, even angels long to look into these things. So every eye in heaven and earth was turned to see and understand what it means for God to save sinful human beings. And you know what? They still are. Both angels and fallen angels are deeply invested in seeing and rejoicing over the salvation of human beings, or conversely, fighting to stop the spread of that great salvation. So Peter's saying a lot here, but the one thing that I want to focus on today is Peter's discussion of Christian joy. He says that even though we're faced with trials, we have inexpressible joy because of the certainty of the salvation that's coming for us. Some Christian writers like to make a distinction between joy and happiness. The word happiness is rooted in the word hap, which we don't really have in normal English anymore, but it shows up as parts of other words like happen or the word perhaps along with its older cousin mayhap, both of which mean it might happen and mishap when something bad accidentally happens. But hap and all these words involve events of the world, things that happen. You could say that happiness means a good feeling that comes from outside of yourself, from your situation, from what others think of you, from what's happening to you, the things of life that you can't always control. Now, these writers contrast this idea of happiness that comes from outside with joy, which they used to refer to that Christian state of contented peace that can come regardless of the situation, regardless of the happenings. It's the state of Paul when he was in prison, and yet he wrote to the Philippians so many times to rejoice, or when he was in prison with Silas and they sang joyful hymns to God. It's what Paul was talking about when he said that he had learned the secret of being content in all situations. He was talking about having joy. In this understanding, happiness can come and go, depending on your environment, but joy can be constant and unfading because God and his promises are constant.
the Christian artist Don Chaffer of the band Waterdeep wrote these lines in one of his songs. He said, I feel the need to sing a song that wrestles with the divine notion that blood atones, that death completes, that joy can supersede emotion. Joy is a thing to be sought after. Happiness, though not a bad thing, is not a thing that you should ever cling to too tightly, lest we value it above the good things of God. Now, probably we shouldn't make too much of the words joy and happiness, because in English, sometimes joy just means a really big happiness. I was overjoyed when I saw you. So I wouldn't make too much of the words joy and happiness, but there's real validity to the ideas that these two states are very different things, and one is more important than the other. So Peter was telling the readers that there was a sure foundation of joy that would uphold the church as they go through the trials of persecution ahead, and that the joy derives from the certainty of our salvation. What about you? Do you have joy? Would you say right now you have joy? Do you have joy all the time? Some of the time? Never? Let's be honest, none of us have joy all the time. Our happiness rises and falls with the circumstances, but sometimes, honestly, we let our joy slip away also. But the difference is this, happiness isn't always available to us. A normal human life will have its measures of happiness and pain, but joy, though we don't always successfully avail ourselves of it, is always available to us. And this joy in our salvation is the fuel by which a pilgrim, a sojourner in exile lives, endures, and thrives in the foreign land in which we now find ourselves. But truthfully, we at times let ourselves be robbed of that joy. I wanna mention a couple of things that sometimes rob Christians of their joy and their salvation. And the first one is the most obvious one, sin. So we saw in Psalm 51, David prayed, restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Being in sin robs us of the joy of our salvation. You couldn't really be enjoying a happy relationship with a friend while you're stealing from them. The guilt and the shame and the fear get in intermingled with every part of that relationship. The same is true of our relationship with God. We can't be actively sinning and enjoy fellowship with him. It's not to say that our sin breaks our union with God and we're no longer saved, but it certainly harms our communion with him. Paul, when he was writing to the Corinthians, he describes a Christian life using the metaphor of building a building on the foundation of Jesus Christ. He says, if anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. So in this metaphor, the gold and silver costly stones, that's building a life of good deeds and service and obedience to God on the foundation of Christ. The wood, hay, or straw, it's intended to be a metaphor for a poorly lived life, a life that does not please God coming from a Christian. He says the day, the day of Christ's coming will bring the quality of our work to light. It will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. And if what has been built survives, the builder will see a receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. So 
Paul's saying it's possible to live a really poor quality Christian life and still be saved. That's not what we should aspire to, though. That's what we not what we want to come to God with when our time comes, with the fruitless waste of our lives burning up and we ourselves coming to him empty-handed through the flames. We want to come to God presenting to him a life that was characterized by service and obedience, not to earn his salvation, but because we're grateful for his salvation. When we're faced with temptation, we can remind ourselves of that very question, which thing will we value more when the temptation is past, either because we've withstood the temptation or because we've succumbed to it. It'll pass either way. Which will we value more, the sweet memory of having committed that sin or the joy of an unstained relationship with the Lord? However, just as guilt can rob us of the joy of our salvation, false or unnecessary guilt can do the same. So what do I mean by unnecessary guilt? I mean a feeling of guilt about something that either genuinely wasn't your fault, you literally didn't do it, or guilt about something that isn't actually a sin, or thirdly, a continued feeling of guilt over something that you've done, but have confessed to the Lord, you've repented of it, and you've made what amends with people that can be made. God created us with conscience. And our conscience is an inbuilt alarm system that he provided, and guilt is the siren of that alarm system. It's similar to pain. Pain has a purpose. It's designed to keep us from doing things that damage us. When you touch a hot stove and it burns you, that's good. If it didn't, you might keep your hand there and suffer permanent damage. The system is working the way it should. If, however, after a time of healing, the pain never went away, then there's something wrong with the system. Or if there was pain without any cause at all, we'd say the system was misfiring and we'd treat the pain. It's the same with guilt. Guilt's an alarm system to keep us from doing moral evil and to point us to our need for a savior for atonement and forgiveness. If you never feel guilt, there'd be something wrong with the system. But sometimes, just like the pain system, the guilt system misfires. So sometimes we feel guilt over things that we didn't do or which aren't sins. Um, some people, whether it's just because of their personality or maybe past abuse that has occurred in their lives, they feel guilty more than they should. When someone else does something wrong, they feel guilty. If your child says or does something embarrassed, you feel guilty. Your boss makes a mistake and blames you. You know it was her mistake, but you blame yourself anyway. Sometimes we feel guilty for things that aren't even sins. Somebody asks you out and you say no. Someone asks for your help and you're just not available. That's not a sin, either to ask or to say no. But sometimes we feel guilty for things like that anyway. The guilt system is misfiring. Sometimes, though, we actually sin, but after confessing to the Lord and repenting and making amends to people we've harmed, we continue to feel guilty. Sometimes we even hold on to that guilt intentionally, letting it follow us around forever, as if it somehow helps to atone for the wrong that we've done. But feeling guilty is good when it points you to your error, uh, but when the error is corrected, it no longer serves a purpose. You can remember and learn from your mistakes without feeling guilty about them forever. The Bible says it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance, not our perpetual bad feelings. 
So when we've been forgiven and we've made what amends we can, hanging on to the guilt isn't a virtue. It's sitting down in the middle of a race and deciding you're just not going to move forward anymore. So unnecessary guilt can rob us of the joy of our salvation. But one other thing, worry. Peter says that we're living in exiles, but our return from exile is certain. He says that we certainly will, and will receive that inheritance. It's kept in heaven for you, and that you yourself are shielded by God's power. Sometimes, though, we start to append a yeah, but to those promises of God. Yeah, I'm saved, but I'm not sure how I'm going to pay the rent this month. Or yeah, I'm going to heaven, but right now I'm dealing with this illness. Sure, I'm forgiven by God, but I'm afraid that people at work don't like me. And it's not like any of those yeah buts can't be true. When we worry, usually our worries are groundless, but it's not like bad things can never happen. You might chronically worry about medical things and you go to doctor's appointment after doctor's appointment, year after year, and everything's fine time after time. But we're human beings in broken bodies and eventually something's gonna be wrong. When your husband or wife is late from work or your kid is late home from school, probably nothing's wrong, but sometimes it is. When you aren't sure how you're going to pay the bills, things are probably going to work out, but they don't always. The joy of our salvation and the certainty of the promises of God aren't conditional on nothing bad happening in our lives. Instead, they supersede the bad things. They tower over the problems and pains of this life, and they enable us to endure with joy, even amidst pain, those difficulties. One of my favorite parts of scripture is the third chapter of Habakkuk. He was given a vision that the Babylonians were going to come and destroy his country as a punishment for their sins. But he believed that in the end, God would restore them. And while he's in the midst of his trials, he writes, I heard and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones, and my legs trembled. Yet, I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails, and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen, and no cattle in the stalls, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The Sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. Christian, the Lord intends for you to live lives of joy. Not always happiness, but from joy to joy. He doesn't intend for you just to muddle through this life of exile with teeth clenched, just enduring. He intends for you to thrive and to grow. He intends, as David said, to prepare a table for you in the presence of your enemies. The joy of our salvation is the fuel for a life in exile. Don't let Satan or the world or your own misfiring conscience rob you of that. Keep it fixed in your sights and let it keep you far from sin. If you do sin, confess it to the Lord quickly. If you've harmed someone, whether in word or deed, do what you can to make amends. Then let the guilt go. It's not a virtue to hold on to it. And 
Christ doesn't need your help atoning for your sins. What he did on the cross was more than enough. And when you start to let the cares and the worries of this life overwhelm you, immerse yourself in the promises of God. Promises that don't prevent the dangers of this world, but promises that far surpass them. Just as the stars fade from view with the dawn and the rising of that nearer and far greater star, the sun. With our eyes fixed on him, we advance, we move forward in his service, and ever closer to the day when we see him face to face.